appreciate you. Lord, I love you. I thank you for my friend Brad. I thank you for the wisdom, the joy, the life, the revelation, the prophetic spirit, um, just everything that you've placed on him, that you've placed on Andy. We just thank you for them. We thank you for the season and uh, bless my friend with much anointing to preach the mysteries of Christ as he ought. We love you and we bless you. Amen. Amen. Thanks, bro. I just really like it here. This is, I mean, you people are great. And I like this room. I like this stage. You guys got a great sound system. You guys got a couple things going for you as far as I'm concerned. So, well, thank you for coming back. I know it's a sacrifice to be here on a Saturday afternoon. You got a thousand things you could be doing with your time. So I want to thank you for being here. <clears throat> Go over just a little bit of business here before we, uh, we jump into the session. So session notes are being passed out. Thank you so much for that. Um, we've been having some great meetings on the side. Um, we got to have a good long connect with David and Allie this morning, and then I got to meet with uh, some of your, your leaders here uh, over lunch, which was, uh, which was fun. I mean, I had fun. I don't know if they had fun, but whether they did or not, I walked away having a good time. Uh, just some good meetings, talking about this house of prayer and what the Lord's doing here and where the grace of the Lord is on you guys and some steps that could be taken. And so I'm just excited to hear and to kind of track with what goes on with this house of prayer in the coming weeks and months. I think it's gonna be super exciting. Well, what we're gonna do tonight, so I'm, I know you're like, wait, aren't we in the afternoon? Yes, but I gotta give you a warning, okay? Tonight, we're gonna do two sessions, okay? The first session I'm gonna teach on is gonna be on the global end time prayer movement. And that is gonna be, I'm just, I'm just guessing that the majority of that you will not be familiar with. Uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. It's sharing some stories going on around the world and what's happening right now of which you are part of that global story. Uh, so I think that'll be really encouraging. But the last session that we're gonna do, so that'll be the first one tonight. The second session we're gonna do is a time of Q&A. And let me just tell you kind of the game plan on that. Um, in fact, you know what would be awesome is if we could get the notes for tonight's Q&A. Go ahead and get that passed out now because it's not really notes, it's more like prompts for them to journal and write down questions and stuff. Is that, is that too much to ask? Thank you so much, Chris, I appreciate, appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so tonight's second session, just I'm calling it session six, but it's a Q&A time. It's anything that we've been covering in any of these sessions. If you've got any questions about it or clarification points, if you've got any questions about the global prayer movement, because I think tonight we're gonna talk a little bit about that in a way that will hopefully be encouraging and provoking. If you've got any questions about any of the other things we're seeing and trends that we're seeing, because we are, thankfully, by the grace of God, able to connect with dozens and dozens of houses of prayer. Or if you've got any questions about what we're doing back in Dallas, if that's helpful. I want to spend some time tonight kind of debriefing with you. That's what that final Q&A session is. And what we found is in these conference settings, those Q&A times can be super helpful to kind of help you, like, decompress, you know, like kind of process. What have we been hearing? And some of these ideas are new and, and, you know, you said this, but did you mean that? I mean, all that kind of stuff. So I, I want for us to do that tonight. And I want to encourage you with this. I don't know how many times I've heard the following thing said. And so let this be a little bit of an encouragement to you. I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say, Oh, 
I'm so glad they asked that question because I actually kind of had that question, but I didn't know how to word it. I'm so glad they asked that question because I wanted to know the same thing. I just didn't even know that I wanted to know the same thing. Here's the reason I'm saying that to you. If you feel like tonight you have half a question, I want to encourage you to ask it. Uh, Maybe I can help fill in the blanks of the other half of the question. But in my experience, if you'll ask that question, it'll bring some things out that will actually serve your your neighbors and your friends in this room. And so I'm going to encourage you, ask those questions tonight. Because do you know how lame a Q&A section is? Session with no cues? There's nothing for me to, hey, I just stand up here to stare at you with a big smile for like an hour. It's going to be so bad. No, we'll, we'll figure out something. We'll, that time, as long as it's fruitful, we'll engage. And if there's just a few questions, then it'll be a short session. That's okay, too. Uh, but I want to encourage you, take down questions. Maybe you've got some from last night. Maybe you've got some from today and the stuff we'll cover. Uh, some of the stuff tonight. Some of the other things that you'll be kind of just processing. I gave you those Q&A sheets, and thank you guys for getting those passed out. They're just some little prompts. Like, do you have any questions about this? Do you have any questions about this? I want to encourage you, come to tonight's second uh, time, the second uh, portion of our, our evening session, come ready with questions. Is that a deal? Is that fair? Pretty simple? Okay. Um, good. And then what we'll do, again, this afternoon, and then also tonight, because we're doing two teaching times, we'll take that little break in between like we did last night so everybody can kind of stretch your legs and stuff. I'm just, I'm, I'm giving you hope that you don't have to sit there for two hours, okay? I'm trying to I'm, inspire you to go, you just got one leg of the race you gotta get through, and then it's potty break and get a cookie. Well, I made up the cookie part. Maybe you brought your own cookies. If you brought your own cookies, please share. Um, but you'll get a little break uh, in between, okay? Okay, so uh, I want to just let you know about a couple of the resources in the back, and really, the reason I brought them is because these resources have been so massively encouraging to the people back at our house of prayer. They've been fuel for the fire. It's helped cast vision for the people back at our house of prayer in Dallas. It's cast vision for them of why do this? Where's it at in the Bible? How do I keep my heart alive? That's the reason we created these resources. And then because it was helpful to them, we're like, well, let's take it out wherever we go and maybe it'll be helpful to others as well. So that's the reason that we have those. So the first one I want to let you know about, last night we covered more or less one session of what this resource is. It's called Unceasing. Again, this is an audio course, so you can either do the uh, Uh, CDs, or you can do the Teachable account, online access, online course kind of deal. There's eight sessions here about what the Bible has to say about night and day prayer, specifically about unceasing prayer and worship. So last night, we covered more or less one of those sessions. So if that was a concept, you're like, I actually want more on that. I want to I want to go deeper in what the Word of God has to say about actual night and day prayer. That's what this is. This is eight sessions. Each session is about an hour, so call it eight hours worth of content on the subject of unceasing prayer and worship, okay? So that's what this one is. Then we did a Bible school course. Again, all of our books we wrote for our part-time Bible school, okay? All of them are 14 sessions. This one's, I don't know, maybe 150 pages, 160. This one's called Cultivating a Life of Prayer, this one is a lot of how-tos, it's a, but it's a study guide. And so it's, how do you cultivate a life of prayer? What does that look like? What does it mean to do that? What does the Bible have to say about that? What are some key Bible verses to fuel your heart as you're trying to learn how to cultivate a, uh, a life of prayer? And I like that term, cultivate, because it, it actually puts a little bit of the, the onus on us. We got a little bit of work to do to make that garden beautiful. And so the concept of cultivating a life of prayer uh, this is a 14-session 
study course, you know, uh, real deep. I say deep. What I mean by that is there's a bunch of Bible verses. I don't mean it's so smart, but there's a bunch of Bible verses, so to me that's deep. Um, so it's a study on you know, what does that look like and how do you do that practically. So this one's great if you want to go slow, you want to go at your own pace, you want to kind of read through a little bit, process, chew on it, and then figure out how you're going to implement it in your life. Cultivating a life of prayer, that's what this course book is. Andy, I'll go ahead and hand these off. Thank you so much. And I'm really appreciative of Andy. He's been with us for 17 years doing this. And so he is, he is as much in the midst of all this as anything. And I'm actually going to have Andy do the second afternoon session uh, talking about the history of the prayer movement, which is just, a, I love that subject. If history is a boring concept to you, it used to be boring to me until I realized there's a prayer movement and there's a history of that prayer movement, that the prayer movement didn't start, you know, 20 years ago with IHOP, that the prayer movement's actually been going on forever. Um, Andy's going to share on that session. I'm just looking forward to that. Okay, well, let me pray again, and then we'll start and stuff. Father, we ask you in Jesus' name for your grace, and that today, Lord, as we look at the life of David, and we see what his contribution was to this, I pray that you would help us, Lord, that our hearts would be alive, that we would feel what you feel about David, and we would see what you see about this man in Jesus' name. Well, this is our Culture of Prayer Conference, session three, David's Heart After God. Now, what I want to do in this session is I want to talk about King David probably from a direction that most of you, or I would say a good number of you, maybe, maybe all of you, have probably never thought of related to David, okay? I think a lot of times when we think of David and our, 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 the name King David comes to mind, we immediately think Goliath, you know, slayed the Philistine, we think he was the arm bearer, you know, for armor bearer for you know King Saul for a season. He was running away from King Saul. He he was in King Saul's court, you know, playing the harp for a while. We we think of these different things. We think of his big uh oh mistake that he made. Uh, I think King David, when we hear that name, there are some particular pieces of his life that come to mind as our most uh, primary kind of default thought process about David. And truthfully, all those things happened. All those things are a part of the story. But I don't think that's at all how heaven sees David and thinks about David. I don't think that is at all what the angels think when the name David comes up. I think there's a very different narrative that's being told from heaven. And I want us to unpack it today because I believe it has tremendous impact on our conversation about the house of prayer, about building night and day prayer, I think that there's a, a very different story to tell. Now, we're gonna start <laughs> with a vow that David made when he was a kid. When David was 12 or 13, for the sake of today's message, I'm just gonna call him a 12-year-old because I don't wanna have to keep trying to preface. And if you go find out, you do your deep, deep study and you find out he was 11 and a half, then give me a little grace, okay? But we're gonna go ahead and call him a 12-year-old for right now. Right? But when David was 11, 12, 13, when David was a 12-year-old, he made a vow to God and it got recorded in the Bible. <laughs> I want you to think about this for a second, okay? When I journal, the last thing I'm thinking is it's gonna wind up in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, for a lot of reasons. But I wanna tell you, David was not expecting that his vow that he made to God in a private moment 
would get recorded forever and that believers thousands of years later would be able to read about it. That was not what he was thinking. I mean, this was a very private moment that David was having with God whom he loved as a 12-year-old. And as a 12-year-old, this was, when we read it, you read it, you go, dude, you're kind of a gutsy kid. <laughs> like, you said some stuff that was kind of audacious and like, what 12-year-old thinks that way? What 12-year-old thinks they can do that? What 12-year-old has the, the guts to say stuff like this? And then, what 12-year-old does God actually back up on the crazy things that David said as a 12-year-old? This is a really crazy story, okay? All right, so let's read the vow. We're in Psalm 132, okay? It's here in the middle of the page. And I just gave you a little excerpt out of it. We'll look at a little bit more of it here a little later in the session. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Wow. <laughs> David, what's, uh, what's going on, man? <laughs> what is, what's causing this? What is provoking this kind of language that you would say these things? You know, what is going on in your world and in your mind? Well, let me give you just a little bit of context here, okay? David is 12 years old, whatever, you know, 11, 12, 13. He's 12 years old, and he's growing up as a shepherd, okay? He's the youngest of all the, all the brothers, and he's a young shepherd boy, and during the time frame of his life, the leadership of Israel had been doing unthinkable things. Unthinkable. To start with, under the leadership of Eli, who had two sons, under the leadership of Eli, the Ark of the Covenant had gotten captured by the bad guys. Now, let me tell you why that's such a big deal. The Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God on the earth. You can't let the enemy capture God. Okay, this is a really big deal. This represented like the greatest failure in leadership imaginable. And David's a kid and he hears about it and he's freaking out. He is flipping out. He's like, I cannot believe that they let the presence of God get captured by the enemy. And furthermore, once it was captured, they did nothing about it. This is unthinkable. And this happened while David's a boy. And David's aware of this. And David is in crisis in his soul as a 12-year-old. I don't know too many 12-year-olds that are in crisis in their soul. At least not about much important. Okay, maybe it's like the video game, you know, shut off while I was at level 10. But I mean, I don't know too many 12-year-olds that are like burning with the things of God in their heart. David did. And David saw something very much out of place. And he said, this is wrong. He said it, you know, if, if you'll allow me to read through the language here. He said, there needs to be a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. 
We need a place where the Ark of the Covenant can rest and where God is tended to, where he's got a dwelling, where it's treated with respect, where God is, his, he's tended to. We let the presence of God be captured by the Philistines. And we all know the story, the Philistines, they wind up with the Ark of the Covenant and shortly thereafter, they all start getting tumors. And it's like, that's because that Ark of the Covenant ain't y'all's. It don't belong over there. And so they, they get rid of it. They're like, send this thing off. We're tired of dying of cancer, okay? So this thing gets sent off. But here's the thing that's unthinkable. It gets sent off, and the national leadership of Israel doesn't go get it. They allow it to stay at Obed-Edom's house. It wasn't supposed to be at Obed-Edom's house. <laughs> it's supposed to be right there at the center of Israel. It's supposed to be the, the very... Uh, presence of God in the midst of the nation, leading the nation, giving strength to the nation. This is the presence of their God. And it was treated so tritely. And so David, in the context of that, he says, not on my watch. He says, I'm a 12-year-old, and I'm going to make my life purpose seeing to it that the mighty one of Jacob gets a dwelling place. Now you might go, okay, well, what does a dwelling place mean? Let me tell you the easiest way to figure out what somebody means. In retrospect, after it's over, what did they do? All right, so if one of my kids, if he's like, I'm gonna build a spaceship, and building with Legos or something, I'm gonna build a spaceship, and I'm like, I don't know what the heck that's gonna mean from this kid. I'm gonna build a spaceship. The easiest way to figure out what he means is let, them, let the dude build the spaceship, and then show it to me and go, oh, <laughs> That. <laughs> so when you say spaceship, you mean that. <laughs> Simple story here. When David says, I will not rest until I build, uh, build God a, a resting place, a dwelling place, fast forward into David's life and see what David did about that, and that's what David meant. You tracking? Well, what did David do? This is a subject that we don't have a lot of time to get into right now, but what David did was he got the Ark of the Covenant back. You guys probably know that piece of the story later on, and we'll cover some of this. He got the Ark of the Covenant back, and he positioned singers and musicians around the Ark of the Covenant, and they sang to God night and day and day and night and night and day. He established a worship order where instead of there being a curtain around the Ark of the Covenant, he made a curtain out of dudes with guitars. And he established a new perimeter, a new curtain around the Ark of the Covenant called the worshipers that were lifting up the name of God night and day. He established a new worship order. It's what we call the Tabernacle of David, or you could call it the Tent of David. I mean, if the term tabernacle is a, is a tough one to catch, uh, or it makes it sound too spiritual, just say Tent of David. Why? Because it was a tent. David set up the Ark of the Covenant in a tent. And then under that tent, he positioned singers and musicians and, and, and worship leaders, and they, and they sang songs to God. So when David at 12 says, I won't rest until I establish a resting place for the mighty one of Jacob, and we ask ourselves, what does that mean? Fast forward whatever it is, 30 years, and now he's done it. And what was it? He established 24-hour prayer and worship around the presence of God with the Ark of the Covenant at the center. That's what he meant when he was 12. Hmm. Okay? Well, when we think about David's life work, I always think about, for whatever reason, it always comes to mind, I always think about the skyscrapers 
in uh, downtown uh, New York City. You know, the really, really big ones. And I think about some architect, that's his baby. Like he probably, that probably wasn't his first project, you know? He probably worked on some smaller projects. And then eventually he's like, he's asked to build or to come up with the, the infrastructure and the blueprints for some gigantic skyscraper. And it's there. I mean, we're just decade after decade after generation. There are these massive buildings. And I just think about that as like the life work of a guy, you know, or a gal. Like that they've, they've been doing all this stuff, but man, the, the capstone of what it is that they created, really kind of what they built up to was that massive Structure in downtown New York City. When we think about David's life work, it wasn't that he became king. He didn't want to be king. He was not pining for kingship. That was not something that was his desire. It wasn't that he was a warrior. That's not primarily what he's known for in heaven's perspective. He has a life work, and this is the part that I want to shift your perspective on a little bit. How heaven thinks of David how David thought of David and how David's life reflected what is David's life work. What is the the main thing that he built towards? It was actually establishing a 24-7 house of prayer around the presence of God, around the Ark of the Covenant. That was David's life work. That's mostly what heaven's thinking about when heaven thinks about David. Not that he was king. That was a means to an end. (laughs) Not that he was a warrior. That was just part of his personality. What did he do? do for God. He established a resting place for the mighty one of Jacob. He built God a dwelling place. He built God a 24-7 house of prayer with live worship. That's what he did. That's his life work. All right. Well, we've talked a little bit about some of this uh, already. We can kind of skip there. I gave you some verses there, and I'd encourage you to read them. Like I said, these uh, notes There's stuff in the notes that we're not going to cover, and it's there for you to go back if you're hungry and you want to study it a little bit more. It's there. But I give you a few of the verses that kind of talk about um, uh, David's uh, conflict in heart as he's watching the Ark of the Covenant get captured by the enemy and all that kind of stuff. I gave you a few verses there. Okay, But here's really what was going on in David's heart. David was recognizing in in his generation, in his day, there was a crisis in the land. It was a presence of God crisis. In David's generation, the presence of God was not known, was not tended to, was not uh, um, honored. And he said, this is not right. I think about our generation. I think about our current scenario in America, here even in the great Republic of Texas. We have got a presence crisis. We have a presence crisis. We do not have the presence of God in the land. And the lost world isn't going to fix that, and the government isn't going to fix that. David's will. David's will fix that. And that's the only solution. There is no other answer except some rowdies go, it's not okay, let's fix the problem. There's no other way to get there. And I just want to kind of exhort us with that, because if we're looking for someone else to fix the presence crisis, there is no one else out there to do it but us. And the fact that there's already a house of prayer here, we've already got the biggest head start down that road to fix the problem. We've already taken the first big step, and let's get this thing started. Now it's time to add fuel to the fire, if you will. So David identified a problem, and he made a vow, and he said, yep, my life is about fixing that problem. I'm just like, 
what a gutsy 12-year-old. <laughs> Who even takes a 12-year-old serious when they talk about stuff like that? God did. For real, God did. So maybe we can all recognize that the way God sees us is different than the way man sees us. And when we make ardent commitments in our heart to God, about God, for God's glory and purposes, he hears us. It's pretty important. All right, so let's transition now. Let's talk a little bit more about David because there's some crazy things said about David in the Bible. I'm gonna give God's commentary on David. Not man's, not what did we hear in Sunday school. <clears throat> I want us to catch what does God say about David because here's something that I want you to catch that is just, it, it is confronting. The Bible says things about David that the Bible doesn't say about another human being in the Bible. The Bible says things about David that it doesn't say about anybody else. When I think about that idea, I want to pay close attention who was this man. Not what job title did he get, king. Not what exploits did he do, kill a big dude with some rocks. I want to know who was this man what burned in his heart that would cause the Bible to say things about David that the Bible doesn't say about anybody else? Why? Who was this guy? What was he made of? So let's just look at some of it. We're told that David is a man after God's own heart. That statement is not made of anyone else in the Bible. Makes you kind of wonder, what, is, what was this guy like? What, is, what was going on with David that the Bible would say that about David? Now, let's just kind of break that term down for a couple of minutes. A man after God's own heart, that means a lot. One, it means a man who was committed to God's heart. He was after God's heart. He was, he was pursuing God's heart. But it also means it's a man who was patterned after God's heart. He's a man after me. He's a man like me. He's a man that thinks like I think. He's a man that cares about what I care about. By this subject, by this phrase that is said about David, we can actually learn a lot about what God is like and about what God likes. David is a man after my own heart, and I don't say that about anybody else in the Bible. What did David do? What was he about? What did he give his time and attention to? Because whatever that is, I want to do that. Whatever gets God to say, Brad is just a little bit like David. I, I, yes, please, help me. Because that is a honor that is not given to anybody else in the Bible. We don't know, did God ever feel that way about anybody else in human history? Maybe, probably. It's just not written in the Bible. It's written about one guy. Furthermore, isn't that a kind of provoking statement? Like, why is that in there if not to make all of us jealous and provoked? Why say it? Why? Just because God likes bragging on people? Yeah, yeah, but it got in the Bible and the Bible's been around forever. So all of us have had to like read it for hundreds of years and go, God talked about David differently than God talked about every other human being. That is a profound, like, statement 
statement about God's thought processes, about his aspirations, about his desires. <laughs> that is a really intense idea. Now, let's look at what's really crazy about it. The first time it's said about David, David's still 12. Huh? Uh-huh. He's 12. He hasn't done anything. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. A man after my own heart, because he killed Goliath, because he was a king, because he, he repented when he made the big mistakes. No, because he was 12. What had he done at that point? He made a vow about the presence of God being worshiped night and day, and he meant it. Read it with me. Top of page three, bottom of page two. Before David became king. <laughs> but now your kingdom, this is the Lord speaking through Samuel to Saul, the current king. It says, now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. The Lord has sought out, he paid attention to every human being on the planet. And he sought out a man after his own heart and he found one. He says, I'm gonna make this guy the next king because I really, really like what's going on in his heart. Cool. He's probably like 35 and in his prime and he's done a lot of really cool stuff for you, right? No, he's 12 and hasn't done anything except what's in his heart because the subject is a man after my own heart. What's in his heart is my glory. What's in his heart is my renown. What's in his heart is my presence being adored. If I give this guy the reins, He'll build me a 24-7 house of prayer that I might be glorified and take honor in it, take pleasure in it. So before David's done anything, good or bad, he's 12, it says this about him. <laughs> that is a really profound statement because we just would think that there would need to be a deeper resume and God goes, oh, I look at not the outward appearance. I look at the heart. And let me tell you what's going on in the heart of this young man. This guy thinks about me differently than all the rest of you. This guy thinks about who I am and what I want more than anybody. This guy, I'm calling him a man because he's acting like a man with such maturity at 12. This man, this young man made a vow that I would be worshiped night and day. I'm gonna give him the power to actually pull it off. Oh my gosh, the statement of man after my own heart was made about a 12 year old. <laughs> that's that's kind of hard to swallow. And God's like, oh yeah. Now let me give you another one. It's set again. And this time it's long after David has lived and died. So first we've got before he ever did anything. And then we've got another testimony after he's done everything. Yes, everything, including the thing you're thinking of. After he's done everything, the testimony is reiterated again about David and nobody else in the Bible. It says this in Acts chapter 13. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to. He will do 
everything I want him to. He'll do stuff that I want him to. What did David do? He built God a 24-7 house of prayer and surrounded the Ark of the Covenant with singers and musicians. What did David do? That's what David did. And God said, David will do everything I want him to. This testimony is said thousands of years after David is dead. Why do I say that? Because we've got a testimony before he ever did anything good or bad, and then we've got a testimony after he did everything good and bad. And the testimony is, this is a man after my own heart. There's nobody like him. That's pretty stout. <laughs> I mean, wow, Lord, you, you kind of have a crush on this guy. Like, you really, really love David. You really think a lot. You think highly. You, you see the value of this man where nobody else did. Do you know how nobody else saw the value of David? Nobody else saw the esteem factor here is unbelievably high. I can't think of a higher honor than God choosing to have your name and the phrase man after my own heart and that statement not be in the Bible about anybody else. I can't think of a higher esteem than that. Let me tell you how man saw David. The night David got anointed to be king, he's still a boy. The prophet Samuel comes to town. And Jesse has got a bunch of sons. The prophet comes to town. I promise you, this is the biggest day in that small town in the history of that small town. This is way bigger than the president coming, you know, and doing a little town hall meeting. This is like the prophet Samuel is coming to town. Furthermore, he says, Jesse, I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. And Jesse goes, oh my gosh, it's the biggest honor possibly imaginable for Jesse. What would be bigger than the prophet Samuel coming to dinner? They're doing everything. They're getting everything right. Samuel comes to dinner. Samuel looks at, at uh, Jesse and he says, he says, I'm here to anoint one of your sons to be the next king of Israel. And Jesse's like, whoa. And he looks at the first one. He says, the Lord has rejected this man. He says, the Lord has not chosen him, not chosen him, not chosen him. It has to be the most embarrassing question anyone has ever been asked in the face of the earth, in the history of everything. Jesse, do you have any more sons? <laughs> I mean, you're the prophet Samuel. It's the biggest day ever. How could I have? <gasps> yes, one, the runt. He's out tending the sheep. And Samuel says, no one sits down. Go get him. We're all going to sit here. We're going to stand here, rather, until you go get that boy. He walks in and says, this is the Lord's anointed. And he, he prophesies and he says, you're the next king of Israel. And he anoints him. And you just imagine the brothers are like, uh-oh. We should have been a little nicer to the runt. And the dad is just, can you imagine how embarrassing that is? You get asked by the prophet, where, do you have any more? Like you got a bunch of sons, but do you have any more? And if you do, shame on you for not inviting them to the biggest dinner ever. Oh, you do? Yeah, we'll deal with you later. <laughs> right now, nobody sits down. I want to make sure everybody understands how serious this is. See, because the way man saw David and the way God saw David at 12 were hyper different, polar opposites. And God says, I look and see how much of my glory do they want? How far will they go? How hard will they fight for night and day prayer? That's what I'm looking for. And I call them a man after my own heart. I'm just saying I think there's a good measure of that still available for us that would read the story of David and like we would do with all the Bible, we would read the Bible and go, I want what that Bible says I can have. I wanna be what that Bible says I can be. 
I want to learn the lessons that that Bible was written for to give me. So here we are in 2023. Who wants to be like David? All right, let's keep going. What else does the word say about David? Because there's some crazy stuff. 1 Kings 15, 5. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, I want us to catch this for a second. We constantly get on to David about what was a epic failure in his life. Now, I don't want an epic failure in my life. I do not want that. But I don't know that anybody could do as good as standing before God at the end of their life and God going, they were perfect except that one dumb thing they did. They did one dumb thing. It was really a dumb thing. Except for that, they were perfect. <laughs> Whoa! Doesn't say that about anybody else. They did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, what did David do? David built God a 24-7 house of prayer. He put the Ark of the Covenant in a tent, and he surrounded it with singers and musicians. That's what David did. He actually did that for decades. He fought some battles for an afternoon. He made a mistake with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. That lasted a week. It was dumb. He did some things. Do you know what he did for decades? Do you know what marks a person? It's not what they did in an afternoon. It's what they do for decades. Who was David? What did he do for decades? He built God a 24-7 house of prayer. He surrounded the Ark of the Covenant with singers and musicians. That's what David did. <laughs> so when God says, I really like this guy, he goes, let me tell you about him. As for David, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life. I really like this guy. I, I can't even imagine the Lord saying that about us. That would be the best thing ever. Look at this one, though. I look at this, and I'm like, man, Lord, that's even somehow bigger in my mind. Acts 13, 36. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers. After David fulfilled the purposes of God for David? No, that's not what it says. It says after David had fulfilled the purposes of God in his generation. There were things that God wanted to do in the generation of David, and David did them for his generation. Holy moly, that's big. What did David do for his generation? He built God a 24-7 house of prayer with the Ark of the Covenant on Mount Zion, and he surrounded it with singers and musicians. The purposes of God for his generation. After that, well, then he died. But he fulfilled the purposes of God in his generation first. That is a really big statement. It's such a big statement that the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years later, the prophet Isaiah is struck with the spirit of the Lord and he starts prophesying about David. And he says the wildest thing. Here it is, Isaiah 55, three through four. Give ear, come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. Now that's kind of a big statement, right? He's like, everybody really pay attention. I'm about to say something really important. 
If you'll pay attention to what I'm about to say, it will do you good. If you don't pay attention to what I'm about to say, you're a fool. Listen to me. Everybody listen. And he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander of the peoples. Wait a minute. You have made David who he was, what he was like, his lifestyle, his choices, his life work. You've made David a witness to the peoples of the earth. And this is Isaiah prophesying about David hundreds of years after David. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's like, I like David so much and I really want you to pay attention. Give ear, listen, come. If you're smart, pay attention. I made David a witness to humanity. Do what David did. Be like David was. David's a man after my own heart. You be a man or a woman after my own heart. God made David a witness to humans. That is crazy. What witness what? That we, we should all kill Goliath with stones? No. That we should all become the king of Israel? No. That we should all build God a night and day, 24-7, house of prayer, that his presence might be made known, a mighty one for the dwelling of Jacob. Yes. I made David a witness to humanity. Unbelievable. Who was this guy that God would make him a witness? Can you just imagine God putting David up on a pedestal and going, hey, everybody, if you're human, you got a pulse, everybody, check your pulse. You got a pulse? Be like this guy. I've made him a witness to you. Oh my gosh, that's so intense. That is so heavy. <laughs> I remember when I first came to the Lord, uh, Having been an atheist, I had never gone to church really, I mean, twice and made fun of people. I mean, it was like, I was not a church person. Hadn't read the Bible, hadn't gone to Sunday school, I didn't know anything. So when I came to know the Lord, I just started reading the Bible. And nobody told me to start in some special book, so I just started in Genesis. And I read Genesis to Revelation, read Genesis to Revelation, I got through the Bible like eight times in two or three years. I mean, I just, I was reading the Bible like crazy, okay? And one of the things that I noticed in those early days, I was just like, there is this really weird trend. I just picked up on it. I don't know. I didn't know I was going to need it later. I just found this trend that I saw over and over again. I was like, this is really bizarre. Why does it keep saying this? And here's the trend. Every king of Israel and then all the line of Judah afterwards, after the, the uh, split kingdom, all the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel up until the split they, all the kings, 100% of them, were all compared to David. All of them, it would either say, and they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as their father David had done, or it would say they did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as their father David had done, or they would say they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as their father David had done, meaning there was kind of a, a blend, a mix. Okay, now here's why I'm sharing this with you because this is a really fun study that I wanna encourage you to do. There are only eight kings spoken of well. David, Solomon, and six other guys. So let's just talk about the six, okay? All these other kings, it says things like this. Here, look, look I'll read the verses with me. Bottom of page three, top of page four. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. 
Second uh, Kings 14.3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. Second Kings 16.2, uh, unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This statement is said about every king after it's giving a, a little bit of a description of their life. This is like the final statement, wrapping up what kind of a man were they, okay? There's only six after David and Solomon. There's only six of which it's said that they did as their father David had done, and it's spoken of in the purest sense. There's only six of them. Do you want to know what all six of them have in common? All six of them rebuilt the fallen tabernacle of David. All six. Of the kings that rebuilt the fallen tabernacle of David, all of them, that is said of, of any king that didn't rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David, they are not spoken of highly. Not one of them. Now, why do I say rebuilt? Because the way that the, the things went in Israel much like how things are in government today, a king comes into office, a president comes into office, and they say, this is how I'm gonna rule. This is what I'm gonna be about. And many times those kings would come into authority and go, I am not doing it like my dad did it. We are gonna reallocate some resources around here. We're gonna stop doing this and start doing this. Most of the kings of, of Israel and then of Judah, most of the kings did not have David's 24-7 house of prayer going. Most of them didn't. But six of them after Solomon, it would say something like, they saw in the law that in the times of King David, he had positioned the singers and musicians around the Ark of the Covenant, and they were to operate according to this particular you know, manner and this particular practice, and they reinstated it. That happened six times. There are only six guys outside of Solomon and King David that are spoken of well. And it's the six guys that did that. One more point. There are eight seasons of Israel's history where they experienced spiritual renewal. Eight seasons where, in many cases, their enemies were at bay. Their territory was expanding. Their land was flourishing. There was, there was life and vibrancy in the land. Eight seasons. Not nine, not ten. Eight, at least in the, the seasons of the king's. Eight different seasons. You want to guess what those eight were? David, Solomon, and these six dudes. Why? Because night and day prayer changes a culture. Night and day prayer ushers in the presence of God. Night and day prayer impacts the people's hearts. Night and day prayer, it's not just a good idea. It's the brilliant strategy of God to bring revival to a nation. Guys, this is powerful stuff. I look here at 2 Chronicles 6, 7 through 8, top of page 4. During King David's reign, he didn't build God a temple. He built this tent. And we recognize temples don't blow over, but tents can. Temples keep the heat and the air conditioning in a little bit better, if you will. Temples, a building, a permanent structure is really, really helpful if you're trying to do a night and day house of prayer kind of thing. Well, during David's reign, there was a tent, there was no temple. But David wanted to build God a temple. And look what it says here. This is 2 Chronicles 6, 7 through 8. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. God didn't let him build it, 
But he looked at the motive. He said, you want to, you've built the house of prayer for me and you want to keep building it. You want to make it even better. You want to make it even stronger. I love that. He says, I esteem that. He says, this is good. The fact that that was in your heart, even though I'm not going to let you do it, the fact that it was in your heart to keep building the house of prayer, I love that about you, David. That's a, that, I just love that God esteems even the motives that we haven't even acted on related to building him the house of prayer. It's the same thing that got David into the kingship. This 12-year-old, in his heart, in essence, he's saying, I want to build God the house of prayer. I want to establish a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. I want to make a resting place for God. And what did David do when he was given the chance? He built a 24-7 house of prayer, which is what he was thinking, some version of that, when he was 12. The motives of the heart, God looks at the motives in your heart about building the house of prayer and go, I see that motive and I love it. I honor your desire to see that. Now ask me for grace that you might actually be able to do it. Well, as we're going to do tonight, we're going to talk about the global end time prayer movement, okay? And that's just a really cool, big, fancy, highfalutin sounding term, right? Global end time prayer movement. I mean, it'd make a great trailer for a movie, right? Okay, it's like a big term. And the reason it's global because it's happening all over the globe, End time, because I believe that we're in the season before the Lord's going to come. Is that 10 years, 20, 50? I don't know. But it's not 100 anymore. I don't think it's five either. But we've got some period of time, and it's a prayer movement. It's something that God's doing. So this idea of a prayer movement is one that in the house of prayer culture, it's a concept that we're familiar with, okay? We use the term global prayer movement. Do you know God named it already? He didn't name it global prayer movement. That's our term. God already named the global prayer movement. You want to know he named it? This is great. Just look at this with me. Acts 15, 16. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does these things. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. The global prayer movement, God already called it. He didn't name it quite, but you can, you can see what I'm after here. He identified it as, I'm going to rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David across the earth because wherever there are Gentiles that love me, I'm going to reestablish this fallen tabernacle of David, the 24-7 house of prayer thing that David built with the, with the presents and the singers, the musicians. He says, I'm going to reestablish that everywhere there are Gentiles that love me. God named the global end time prayer movement after David. That is unthinkable. He named it after David because he said, I've made David a witness. I want for every human with a pulse to know the name of David and to know the story behind the man. I've made him a witness. I'm going to name the end time prayer movement after him. I'm going to tell everybody in the last generation, I'm restoring the fallen tabernacle of David. You know that thing that the kings were praised for back in the day? I'm restoring it on the planet, but this time it's not going to just be Jews. He said, I'm going to do it wherever there are Gentiles that love me. And we all know there are Gentiles that love Jesus all over the planet right now. He said, wherever they are, I'm going to establish this David thing. I'm going to, everybody has to do the David thing. He said, Jew and Gentile, if you love me across the earth, you're going to do the David thing because that's what I'm in. And he says, I will rebuild it. 
He says, I am going to be responsible for the launching of this thing. I am going to get this thing going. Oh my gosh, Lord. What have we found ourselves in? Well, I know it sounds impossible. It gets even crazier. He says, you know what? I love David so much. I don't have anybody like him. I'm going to name my son after him. Forever, Jesus is called the son of David. You ever think to ask why? There was already a king in the throne. The way monarchies work is the, son, the king has a son and the son takes over. And then this, that son has a son. The son takes over, that son has a son. And God goes, no. He says, I'm taking Saul out and I'm gonna put the man after my own heart in that position. And then forever, I'm gonna call Jesus not the son of whoever was down in the lineage line. He said, forever I'm gonna name Jesus. Really, this doesn't make any sense to us. I don't even know the name of my great, 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 great grandfather. I don't even know his name. Jesus is called the son of David, which was thousands of years before Jesus was born. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, yes, it does, because the father says, I'm going to pick one man to honor forever. And I'm going to call Jesus the son of that one man. I have made David a witness to the peoples forever. Jesus, can you just imagine this moment? David in heaven, right there, he's standing there. Jesus walks in and the title is given in heaven, in front of David. Jesus Christ, the risen one, the son of David. And David's standing right there just looking down, kicking his shoes, you know, like. And Jesus walks over and says, I'm the son of David. Forever everyone will know. I've made David a witness. Did we ever think to ask why? I want to be like David. The Lord had this in his heart. The Lord named the end time prayer movement after this guy. The Lord named his son after this guy. And it wasn't because he knew how to throw stones at a giant. It was because his life work, what he spent decades on, a vow that he made when he was 12. And God gave him the power to make that vow real. I'll just tell you, there's some vows you can make in your heart and find yourself in a very different position in life if you meant it. Because God might well help make that real for you, especially if it has to do with his house of prayer. This is kind of a big deal. <laughs> this is a big deal. We don't have time to cover the rest of this, and that's okay. The notes are there. You can go check that out on your own. It just tells a little bit of the story. I'll just tell you this. If you want to get a little bit of a heads up, maybe make a note, you could really call Roman numeral three, you could rename it, and you could call it fulfilling the vow. It's just the storyline. 
of what God empowered David to do in order to make good on this vow. But it's all about that vow when David was a boy and God empowered him to do it. When I think about this storyline, I just go, Lord, I want to be in the story in my generation. I want to be part of this in my generation. And I just want to recognize that the population of the earth is a lot bigger than it was during David's time. And now the extension of the kingdom of God is open to Gentiles all over the place. The population, just as a little point of reference here, I'll wrap up. The population of, the, of Dallas, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, is twice the size of the entire nation of Israel at this time. So I'm like, God cares about groups and peoples and Gentiles and Jews. And there's a need for houses of prayer to fill the earth. And I believe that God is speaking to people today, 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 but in this hour, about entering into this whole David narrative and becoming Davids in our generation and being part of the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. I will restore the fallen tabernacle of David. Because I think that's actually what's happening in our generation. Not just COVID and some questionable leadership decisions and some of this and wars and problems. I think what God's doing is he's setting the scene to establish, to reestablish the tabernacle of David. Father, we ask you in Jesus' name for your help. Would you give us grace? Would you just, would you speak? Would you make it make sense? Would you convict us and encourage us? Would you help us, God? I pray in Jesus' name for your strength. Holy Spirit, help each one of us to know what to do with this, to be stirred by it, to be provoked. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take a 15-minute break. That'll give you till 3.20. So it's 3.05 now, 3.20. We're gonna start the next session, okay? So please be back in here at 3.20, ready to go, seated, attentive. We'll have the notes passed out. So you got 15 minutes, 3.20, back in here, amen. And then resources are in the back if you're interested in any of them.